Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. Hey, everybody. We got a a great one today because Andy Slavitt, who's been on this podcast more than any other guest. And you want to know why? Because he has stuff interesting to say, unlike my other guests. So this is this is a good one for a change, except the other times Andy's been on. That's what I'm saying. And uh, Andy uh, has written a book uh, called Preventable. And it's about, um, hmm, what's it about? Oh, yes, the coronavirus and the pandemic and all the stuff that had, was prevent, uh, preventable if this has been handled properly. And it's pretty chilling reading the book. I recommend it. Uh, it gives you a blow by blow and has a lot of stories. And I don't want to ruin any of them for you because some of these are just stunning, including admissions by people like Jared Kushner that, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing this. because So we, we uh, if, it, if it screws up, then we don't have to take blame. That's why we're giving it to the states. I mean. Those of you who've listened uh, know who uh, who Andy is. He had two tasks, uh, big ones, in the Obama administration. One, he's the guy that fixed the website for the Affordable Care Act. It launched October 1 and went down October 1 of 2013. And Andy came uh, from Minnesota, from uh, where he's working at United Health, uh, Andy's friend. And he, he fixed it in five weeks. And I think he saved uh, the Affordable Care Act, and I think he saved the the Obama presidency. He won't say that, but I will. Then he became the head of CMS, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, that is a trillion-dollar organization. They, they spend a trillion bucks every year, Medicare and Medicaid, and he over- supervises a lot of other stuff, too, in that, that role. So a man who knows healthcare, not a doctor, not a scientist, but a guy who's like an executive who knows how to get things done. And during, as soon as COVID hit, that's what he did. And he did that not in the government, but he interacted a lot with the uh, Trump people to try to help. Uh, they didn't take his advice a lot, as you can imagine. He started hashtag uh, stay at home getting people to stay at home, which isolate, which we needed to do. We just needed to do that. And that stopped the spread from escalating until, of course, Trump and the Southern governors and everybody started reopening everything. And he also, uh, for uh, the first four months of the Biden administration, was a, uh, a senior advisor to the coronavirus task force, worked out of the White House. And uh, he's left. He left it a couple of weeks ago. Now he has this book coming out, and uh, it, it really is kind of a must-read to understand really how this could have been done better. But it isn't all Trump. But it, boy, boy, oh boy, it's a pretty chilling book, and uh, this is a pretty chilling interview. So I'm going to get to it right away because this is uh, it's a really good one for a change. When we come back, I'll be talking to uh, Andy Slavin. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. You cover beginning to end, not beginning to end, because it hasn't ended yet, and I want to ask you about the Delta variant mm -hmm. and uh, where we are right now. So let's start there. Where are we right now? As a country, we are in a place that has undergone, I think, a a enormous transformation, maybe the biggest transformation you could imagine a country going through in five months from a place where COVID was basically dictated everything we did, killing thousands of people a day um, and was a state of emergency to, to something which I would call a manageable threat. I mean, a manageable challenge. Maybe that's better said, a manageable challenge. And we have lots of manageable challenges in our life, Al, like there, this is just one of a, of a longer list, but it's no longer in a place where it upends society. And if you've been vaccinated, you are extremely well protected. Um, and so I know that that's a big adjustment for people to hear who we, because we've been living with a certain amount of fear the last year. But if you've been vaccinated, if you've been double vaccinated with the mRNA vaccines in particular, um, you, know, you largely have the opportunity to get your life back now and the things that you lost during the pandemic. So we're in a much, much, much better place. And what we're hearing is that the Delta variant spreads easier, right? It's more infectious than the other variants. And the, the question to me is, do the vaccines take care of it? Here's an odd statement. It is actually... To a little bit to our benefit, if you if we've been vaccinated, assuming you've been vaccinated, that this Delta variant spreads faster, and here's why: because the vaccines work on it, it outcompetes the variants that are more problematic. So there is actually a beta variant, the one that first appeared in South Africa, that the vaccines had a little more trouble with, but the beta variant hasn't had an opportunity to grow because the faster growing variants are the ones like Alpha and, and now Delta that, that are ones that also the vaccine works on well. So in some ways, it's sort of like a, and it's an ally in destroying the more problematic variants. So, so, so far, um, we are in a really fortunate position if we've been vaccinated. If you haven't been vaccinated, it's a completely different story. Completely different Okay, story. then let's just talk about that. When, when I, uh, I'm old enough uh, to remember polio, and I was old and I'm old enough to have gotten the polio vaccine. We all just took the polio vaccine and now there's no polio. And to me, it was, uh, okay, the polio vaccine is available. Let's go get it. So, you know, my parents go down there and to school and take the polio vaccine because we don't want you to get polio. And I went, boy, yeah, I, I think I know what that is. No, I don't want to get it. And we just got rid of polio. And any doctor you talk to never seen polio now. And and uh, they they sometimes treat people who had polio. Some people who are older, 
And that's not pretty. And that can come back. But my God, what changed? What was this? And to, in my mind, it's Trump. And then we're going to spend a lot of time on Trump. And the picture you paint here is of someone who completely abdicated all responsibility whatsoever. Well, you know, you got me thinking, you're talking about polio. Um, uh, you know, people who live through that, uh, you know, adults who live through that, it was exactly as you described earlier, which is imagine robbing the life and joy out of kids. Uh, because, you know, everyone knows the most famous person with polio, polio was FDR, but um, he was an exception. Most people who got polio, polio were, were kids and, uh, you know, they, they couldn't play. I mean, they just basically obviously destroyed their ability to have a life. But we were a more unified country. We trusted science. We looked out for one another, I should say, with obvious exceptions. Um, yeah. There was a common good. The gap between rich and poor was was not as wide as it, as it is now. All of those things changing, I think, have some incremental impact on our ability and willingness to do something that feels like it's part of a patriotic duty or a common cause. And, and, and putting aside Trump completely, the idea of doing something like taking a vaccine is now almost entirely evaluated through the lens of what's good for me. And it turns out that for people over 65, it clearly was something that's good for them. In terms of people who are over 40, it was clearly something that was good for them. From people 18 to 25, um, they don't see it, and they don't see a reason. But but the, the the weird part is is seeing a reason not to, and of course that is the disinformation, which is so pernicious. You know, you write about Trump, and you we know now that he knew about. It. We know from Woodward that he knew they knew what it was. While he at the same time he was saying we have it completely under control, and my my. I feel like Trump would have won re-election, which would have been a disaster of another sort, if he had handled this correctly, if he had handled it right. I completely agree with you. So, like, my sense of things is, like, first of all, let's stipulate this. Pandemics are massive challenges, and it's really hard to manage the, a pandemic, you, you know, flawlessly. Particularly if it's a novel, a novel virus and you've never seen it before and you don't really know what's going to happen. And it's, there's plenty of innocent or well-meaning mistakes that, 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 sure. that are, sure. all of which I think are forgivable. In the book, uh, you basically – one of the chilling things is he gives all the responsibility to the states, essentially. And I compared this to, like, if after Pearl Harbor, FDR had said, you know, this is really Hawaii's problem. You know, but what's chilling to me is a conversation you have with Kushner. And I think this was on testing. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, if they screw up, then it's their fault. And it's not our fault. And it was like, he was like, you see, right. we're smart. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And look, it turned out to be the exact wrong thing to do, because I agree with what you said earlier, which is if you, as I said, managing epidemics hard. But if, if you show a modicum of decency, empathy, and that you're really working on it, which, by the way, I think the vast majority of governors did, then you at least get a B, right? It, maybe you don't get an A, but you get a B. And I think, to your point, people rally to politicians in times of crisis. And so he was probably served up on a platter an enormous political opportunity if he would have just done a few things that, that I think are unforgivable that he didn't do. Number one... In January, as soon as he knew that thousands of people were going to die from the coronavirus and it was coming here, he should have very just simply said, we have a problem. It's time for everybody to protect themselves. The fact that he didn't do that, the fact that he didn't do that is something that I think will go down. It's take take your Pearl Harbor thing. It's like, it's like imagine, you know, the you know, Pearl Harbor is attacked and he says, no, it wasn't. It's not, it's not attacked. Nope. There's no, no, nothing going on here. And, you know, he had, a, he had an ability in, in lesser situations to influence reality, or at least the perception of reality, 
by simply saying something wasn't the case. Gaslighting it, I guess, is what is what people call it. Well, he said it was all under control, all that. He said that for quite a while. And remember when it it was clear that it wasn't out of control anymore, and pe- lots and lots of people were dying. Where he and, and he was asked about this at a press conference, and he said, "Well, I'm like a cheerleader. I wanted to be a cheerleader, and I'm going. What? That's like saying like the." cheerleaders at a game cheer and then they take out ak-47s and fire it into the stands i mean that is just the dumbest fucking thing and what it was about was he didn't want the stock market to go down tomorrow so this is where this is where we learned what i learned that it reported in the book is he learned about this in january goes to bed every night presumably sleeping like a baby all during february it's early march rudy gobert who's an nba basketball player gets COVID by horsing around, infects other people. Adam Silver suspends the NBA season. And your son says he probably just saved a lot of lives. He probably just saves a lot of lives because what that triggers is the stock market then. Your son comes off as a genius in this, by the way. Yeah, sadly, he's smarter than his dad. So Trump is in the situation then where Wall Street traders call him after these two big days when the stock market takes a bath. And the only way he's persuaded to have a press conference to tell the public about this is because he thinks it's the only way to save the stock market. So what he does, and every one of the people that were involved in this next bit was a source of mine for the story, um, is, he, is he basically has a team arrange a press conference early in the week that will get the stock market back up by recruiting the CEOs of major drugstore companies and and. Google and others, and, he, and, he, and they make these commitments that they're going to open up drive-through testing sites across the country, that they're going to have a website to tell everybody where to get tested, and that they've got this thing well, well in hand. And so what happens next is they have this news conference. He has about five CEOs standing behind him. They leave the news conference, and the following happens. Number one, the stock market goes up dramatically. Number two, he then gives a gift. He gets the headlines of the newspaper that sh- that show the biggest rise in the stock market, signs them. Donald, you know, Donald Trump, thank you for what you've done. Gives them to the team that put this three this together. Number three, every single commitment, every single commitment made in that press conference was never followed up on. And number four, that day, Donald Trump decided that the pandemic was done, as far as he was concerned. Yeah, and that is, um, it's stupid. I mean, it's it's cruel. It's 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 completely irresponsible, and that's what I was saying that he he took no responsibility for anything during this. Oh, right. Well, when Jared said to me that he believed that Trump would get credit for the country opening, and then when 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 things got bad again and things had to close, that the governors would get the blame. Uh, my, my response was, first of all, that's a political strategy. It's not a public health strategy. Secondly, I believed it was the wrong thing, and I argued with him strenuously. And thirdly, it turned out not to be a smart political strategy because he, at the, in the end of the day, he couldn't avoid accountability. But still, with the unbelievable disinformation coming from Fox, from talk radio, from Limbaugh while he's still alive, from Hannity, from everybody, from social media, that it was close. It was close. And uh, they he came close to stealing it, closer than I think we know. First of all, he tried to steal it. And I think uh, that uh, the storming the Capitol on January 6th, they came closer than we'll ever know hmm. to literally killing members of Congress. And and, and now 75% or 80% or 85% of Republicans are Trump Republicans. We'll see. We'll see how that plays out. But I know that all my former colleagues in the Senate and Republicans in the House, virtually all of them, are scared of this guy and scared of, they see, you know, Jeff Flake defected, boom, he's gone. 
it is it's remarkable this guys control of the party and what's happened to the Republican Party. But you're you do your best in this book to avoid making this partisan. You work with a lot of Republicans, former members of the Bush administration, the W administration, uh, who join you in a number of things, including I remember you've been on this podcast maybe six, seven, eight times. When you were try, trying, you put it together a plan for, for testing and then uh, I, uh, separa- separating people and quarantining and isolating them, which other countries did, right? And other countries did it successfully. I mean, let's like compare us with, you do this, Germany. Uh, I mean, sometimes you might going to go South Korea. Well, that's... Not really fair because, one, they had seen these kind of pandemics before, and also they're a more unified society than we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can take that as an excuse. Or New Zealand, that's kind of small. I mean, I know what they did was all the right stuff. And Hong Kong, same thing. But Germany. Yeah. Germany's big. <laughs> Germany, Germany, A, they're ethnically diverse, much more than they've ever been. B, they are surrounded by other countries. They've had lots of borders, unlike us, who really we have two borders. So that would make them more exposed. And that's uh, Mexico and Canada. Mexico, Canada. Thanks. And so um, you don't have a lot of respect for your listeners' geographical knowledge. No, I don't. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, so Germany had about a middle-of-the-road response, middle-of-the-road set of circumstances, and they had about 25% of the per capita deaths than we had in the U.S. And I have to say this, that if the president had, number one, called this out when he saw it in January, number two, not fired and all of the scientists and prohibited every single scientist that, that wanted to put out a different narrative, then this is overblown. And number three, if he hadn't politicized masks, those three things alone, let alone doing a better job in testing and everything else, I think we would have been very close to Germany's numbers, which is hundreds of thousands of percentable deaths. It still would have been a tragedy. I mean, if we would have lost 200,000 people, this would still have been a tragedy. Well, let's talk about testing for a second. And I read in your book, I mean, I knew that the CDC's first test was a failure, which is unusual. The World Health Organization had put out a test that we could have used, right? But we didn't. We chose the CDC said, we always do our own tests. And there are all kinds of labs that offered to do it. And the FDA who decided or the CDC who decided. And in your book, it's very unclear who made this decision that, no, we will not approve any test that's not developed by the CDC. You're exactly right. The The big mistake was, and it was by the FDA, who did not allow labs around the country to develop tests because we very quickly had to figure out where the virus was and contain it. Recall that South Korea had their first case on the same day we did. They let every lab in their country develop a test, and they quickly had enough tests to start to contain the virus. We didn't, but here's what's here's what's interesting that comes out in, my, in the book that wasn't part of I think anything else that had been previously reported is Alex Azar, the guy who runs the health and human services department was having a beef with the FDA. And so when he put together his task force, a beef for a completely different reason, and he's, he's petty, he's a petty person. And when he was putting together his task force, he decided to leave off the FDA and CMS. Crazy. Right. And CMS. And CMS, who was in charge of guess what? Nursing home safety. Mm-hmm. And you headed up CMS, so the I, audience should know that. Yes, I headed up CMS under under Obama. and Barack so, Obama was president before Trump. Right, right. You're, you're doing a good job explaining these things to the audience. I don't have right. a lot of respect for, the, for my life. I'm not skating past these things, assuming that people like just know 
that we border Mexico and that we had Barack Obama was a president. But I well, he's two presidents ago now. It's not, you know Biden is the president now, so it gets confusing. That's true. That's true. Okay, now let's uh, okay Azar. Let's make it clear for the my audience who I don't respect that he's the head of HHS under HHS is are these agents these huge yeah. agencies yeah. FDA and important agencies the CDC and uh CMS uh, yeah. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid and you talk to him he doesn't know who made this decision or he says he doesn't know who made this decision he claimed that the FDA made the decision without his knowledge now the FDA claims that they believed they had heard from Azar that they were not to enlist labs around the country because it would violate President Trump's narrative that this whole thing was under control and blown out of proportion. And that if you got a whole bunch of labs saying um, that they were working on tests, it would it would go against that narrative. So we can decide, do we believe what Azar said or do we believe what the FDA said? But either way, or incompetence, uh, incompetence. I mean, and, 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 and I think Azar bears responsibility because FDA reports to him. He decided not to include them in the crisis planning. And if the FDA was left with the, if they watch TV, they would believe it was under control. So what do we need tests for? I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but yes, the dysfunction. It turns out that there was now, now who doesn't have respect for the audience? That was clearly facetious. They, no, that that respects their, the audience's intelligence to understand facetism. I'm that in is, the audience and they stop talking about me. <laughs> right, exactly. Interview well, the guy. People have tuned us out. People have already tuned us out. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's like the dysfunction starts with Trump basically saying that this is the story and you're all going to stick to it. With Azar, who was in a bad place with Trump and a pleaser and trying to carry out orders, whatever those orders were. And so when those orders violated common sense, then things just didn't get done and they rolled downhill. Which is not to say that the CDC didn't make a mistake on its own by having a bad test. They did. I want to be very clear about that. But the thing I know from leading two major crisis responses at the national level is you the, the other a, being the, the the complete crashing of the Obamacare website, which is something that you <laughs> fixed in five weeks and I think saved uh, the ACA and the Obama presidency. Yes. Yeah, so the thing I learned in, a, in, in managing major crises is you have to, if your plan requires you to be flawless and make zero mistakes, it's not a very good plan. You have to account for multiple paths out. So the most important mistake wasn't that the CDC messed up on their test. The reason you enlist hundreds of labs to build their own tests is precisely because someone's going to screw one of them up and you can't be single threaded. If I were going to give it a, a war analogy, you need multiple paths out of the jungle in case the path you take is blocked off. You have to have multiple routes out. And and since you were in the uh, Obama administration and head of CMS there, one of the things that has made me crazy over the last several years is, uh, especially during well during this um, uh, pandemic, is Trump saying the Obama uh, administration left the cupboard bare. Trump became president in 2017. If the tr- cupboard was bare. I mean, he got rid of the, the, the pandemic office within the NSA. He took people out of China, he, uh, CDC people. He took people all over the world, defunded CDC. He did a whole bunch of crappy stuff while he was there before the pandemic. But he had every opportunity to fill the cupboard if you're so concerned about the cupboard. Right. Well, after after SARS and Ebola, as you know, because you were in the Senate, the president and the Democrats proposed refilling the stockpile and the Republicans rejected it. And every year that was in a president's budget every year, uh, the Republicans rejected it. And then when Trump came into 
uh, office, he decided to cut funding for the stockpile by 10% every year. So this is sort of like why the businessman president thing is this sort of fallacy is it's like, I'm a businessman and I, I know that we're wasting money on stuff that we've never had to use, like masks and ventilators and things that work that sit in the strategic stockpile. So I'm going to cut, I'm going to cut them because I'm a shrewd businessman. But of course I don't have a clue what those things are for <laughs> and what happens when we don't have them. And then of course his go-to move is to be like, Oh, Obama left the cupboards bare. And like, honestly, I don't think he bothered to ask whether Obama, I mean, he, he just like, he's, he lies freely. So it's not like he's like, I got to go check and see, can you find out what happened? Can I kind of twist the truth a little bit? He's like, Oh, Obama left the cupboards bare. And, you know, I think the, um, you know, he's got a staff of people that were so used to him lying that, like, they'd get called on it on the news. They'd be like, well, you know, the president's, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, how the, the tap dancing that one had to do to serve in that administration and please Trump um, made it nearly impossible to imagine anything getting done. Yeah, I mean, he didn't go to Deborah Burks and go, like, if I say that the cupboard was bare, right. would that be 100% true? Um, well, you, it depends what you mean. Okay. I mean, I, speaking of Deborah Burks, she doesn't come off great in your book, sometimes better than others. Shall I say that? But I want to play something and you referred to it. And this is what made me want to play it again. Peter has it lined up. This is her. <laughs> and you'll, as soon as you you hear me say what it is. It's the interview with Christian Broadcasting Network in which uh, she characterizes uh, Trump's supervision of, of, the, of the pandemic. He's been so attentive to the scientific literature and the details and the data. And I think his, his ability to analyze and integrate data that comes out of his long history in business has really been a real benefit during these discussions about medical issues. Because in the end, data is data and he understands the importance of the granularity. And I think he's been really excited about finding the level of detail that we've been able to now bring over the last few weeks to really understand who's at the greatest risk for severe illness, who will have mild and less uh, and asymptomatic disease, and really calling on every American to do that social distancing, because some people may not know they're actually infected and be unknowingly spreading the virus. And that all comes from the president seeing the data and then really directing these policies and these guidelines that go out to the American people. Why, why, why? Would she say, here's a guy who is just looking at the granularity of the scientific data, and that has been a huge benefit to our work. Why? Why? Why would she say that? Was there a gun actually, literally, pointed at her head? I mean, how could you? It's one thing to sort of, well, the president is paying very close attention. <laughs> you know, but this is what, what was good? Why, why would she do this? Yeah. I mean, probably the first time the words Trump data and granularity got used <laughs> in the same paragraph, but I, you know, I, so I mentioned in the book that I had a Alan Weisselberg is more in the granularity of the data. Right. So I, I, um, I referenced in the book that I had a conversation with a, well-known former Democratic senator who I know quite well about this very thing. I don't mention the senator by name um, in that conversation, but he asked a very similar question than the one you're asking now. And he, by the way, he looked a lot like you and sounded a lot like you. So we've had this conversation and like your question was, you know, is she selling out or is she working the ref? And, you know, I, I have this, my interpretation is that she thought she was working the ref and she believed at that point in time that he endorsed her plan. And her plan was to set up a whole bunch of gates 
that would be required for for social distancing standards to be relaxed. And those gates had to do with very granular data. And she thought he endorsed her plan. And the day she announced her plan, the, the very next day, he went and tweeted, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, mm. in, in reference to um, kind of armed Trump supporters that wanted to storm the governor's offices in both Because they wanted to open their states. They wanted to do the opposite of what right. she wanted to do. They, they wanted weren't ready to- for. And I have a scene in the book where the lawyer uh, gets involved because he literally just violated his own rules. But she was naive. She thought she had persuaded the president to support her. And she thought she was shoring up that support by doing what everybody in the Trump administration did, which is get some tape out there of her praising the president for this brilliant action. Meanwhile, he was nodding, winking, laughing to his supporters saying, of course, I don't support this expert nonsense garbage. Now, but I will say this about Deborah Burks is in her defense, people who didn't like Deborah Burks hadn't yet met Scott Atlas. (laughs) Well, what a compliment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> what a compliment. Scott Atlas, of course, uh, really basically took her job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and came in, and of course, he is a doctor. He is a medical doctor, a radiologist, right? Yes. And if I, like, if, if, if there's a question whether my arm was broken, for example, uh, I would trust him. Well, I would say this. Everybody in the book, I tried to write in a way that was true to life. You know, Jared Kushner, not as a caricature, but, you know, actual interactions. But I will say the one character, the one person in the book that is not portrayed as like, in a way you think of as a real human being with flaws and et cetera, is Atlas. And I'll tell you why. That was part of a conversation that Reince Priebus was having back in the spring. And this is when all of the, you know, the pointy-headed experts were saying, you know, gee, this is really bad. People are going to die. And Trump was saying, no, it's not. This is, you guys are, this is way overblown. And Priebus said, what the White House has to do next, and I was just at the White House this week, is they're going to go find our own experts, and we're going to play to the media's penchant for both sidesism. And we're going to find someone with a really impressive degree that's an epidemiologist or that that comes from Harvard or Stanford, so I got on Twitter, and in a kind of a mocking way, I did like a, hey, there's a job opening and a great opportunity for people <laughs> who have a decent-sounding degree but aren't getting a lot of fame or attention and want to be uh, in the White House. All you have to do is bend your principles to whatever Trumps are. It literally was my, was my tweet. But I reported on the conversation I had with Priebus. Uh, I didn't mention Priebus's name until the book because, you know, why else would someone want to spend money on a book if it was in my tweet. Anyway, they, so it took them months to find Atlas. And the reason he's not portrayed as a human being is I actually think he's more like the Frankenstein monster. Like they basically said, we need to create someone who's willing to basically say everything the president believes. And they found the guy. You're, you're right. It turns out he's not an epidemiologist or a virologist and, or, or you know, any of those granular details. But he was a radiologist and he has a name Stanford behind him. And so they brought him into the White House and he literally parroted everything that Trump wanted him to say. And by the way, he's coming out with a book in November, apparently. It's a weightlifting book. It's about. Yes. <laughs> sure. Never mind. But yes. But I, I, there, is a, there is a section of the book called Atlas Shrugged It Off, which I thought was clever. Yes. That I got it because that's an Ayn Rand uh, book, uh, Atlas it's Shrugged. Like so many different clever connection points. I, Atlas Shrugged. I stared at that and I said, that's really clever, Andy. You know how many people recognize that? Zero. Zero people think that's clever besides me. Uh, for the listener, uh, the book does not lack for attempts at cleverness. <laughs> I think that is not exactly a compliment, but I am very accepting of it as no, no, and 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 uh, occasionally uh, there are some clever things there, some things that made me go, uh huh, 
It's kind of clever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always been like particularly like very much this pretend amateur jokester in the context you of- at least go out there and try i mean most people uh don't try you, and, and a lot of your tweets are have been funny and you actually had you actually went out and did joke baskets uh on some of your tweets and i remember i remember there's one where you did 10 jokes and i went jesus yeah. christ like eight of these are, are actually really good yeah <laughs> that that was that day surprised me We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with Andy Slavitt, author of Preventable. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back with Andy Slab. So... Uh, Trump at the beginning, of course, said that it's all under control. Remember when he was at the CDC? This was one of my favorite moments where he went, it was very early on. He's at the CDC and he says, you know, I, turns out I'm really good at this stuff and people are surprised, but I'm, you know, I have an uncle who is at MIT and I just have a natural talent. And (laughs) remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And what a weird. <laughs> weird. But you know, the serious point that connects to this is that, like, if you can't separate yourself from the problem, if you see everything as a reflection on you, if your ego is that massive, it's got to be crippling to try to solve a problem because you can't even acknowledge it. And that's what he did to us. I mean, among, if I, in one sentence, that's what he did to us is. He made this about him instead of about us. He could have made it about him. He could have been, look, who runs for president except for people who are kind of narcissistic? I mean, we've had how many presidents now? This is the 46th? 46th. I'd say every one of them. You know, Biden ran three times for president, right? You're a little narcissistic if you're running for president, and that's fine. But my God, there's a way to... The way to successfully do that is to do some work and do the reading. And, you know, you you talk about the transition, and Michael Lewis wrote a book called The Fifth Risk, which was about the Trump transition uh, from Obama to Trump. And you guys, you at CMS, put together all this material for the CMS people to look at, and you're saying that it was kind of an exception because uh, your successor did look at that stuff. But mainly throughout the administration, they just did nothing in the transition. They were just arrogant and stupid. Yes. And look, by the way, I, I, I think it's, I want to clear this up. I don't think this is a Democrat-Republican thing, either in the transition or in the way this pandemic was handled. I believe wholeheartedly that Mitt Romney would have run both a competent transition and a competent pandemic response. I think George W. Bush would have. Uh, I think they would have put good people in place. I think we would have taken it seriously. I think this is about a populist narcissist. Uh, And I can't think, I don't know all of the other presidents in our history, but I can't, I I think that combination um, is particularly bad because if you play to the crowd and and you don't like delivering bad news, 
and you're divisive and you don't do any planning, that's just really bad juju for making the tough decisions you need to make in a pandemic. And by the way, like showing some empathy, like attending a funeral, like putting the country's flags at half mast, like those are easy things that would have got him like 10 points of popularity. But he literally didn't have any of the empathy to even think to do that, even as a device. Yeah, I mean, he didn't. He didn't even think to pretend to have empathy, right? Which is weird. And it, and like and then his staff couldn't even. <laughs> That's weird. Isn't that weird? It's weird, and it's even weirder that like his political staff couldn't knew him well enough to know that they couldn't even advise him to pretend to have empathy. I mean, it's so pathologic. And and there are some pathological things. <laughs> For example. Um, uh, remember, and he did this in front of Burks, and and this was the, um, you know, maybe you can inject uh, disinfectant into you, and uh, you know, I have a, I have a good instinct for thinking outside the box, and maybe this is good, and um, so she's enduring this, she's like trying not kind of to look at him and stuff, and then later, my favorite thing about this is he goes like. I was being sarcastic, and you know it. <laughs> and it was like, really? No. What What was the sarcasm? What was the sarcastic point? Yeah, the sarcastic point is um, somebody really stupid might say this. Well, and <laughs> I mean, that is what, what's the sarcasm? Right. I mean, uh, uh, granted, he is a master at sarcasm, but you know, I think I think it's his. his he he always creates this ability to disown everything he says because he says things off the cuff, completely spontaneously, um, without any thought. And he's very confident in his ability to dodge and weave and move and manipulate like he's always done in his career. The problem is when you run into a problem, when you run into a problem where it's all about perceptions, you know, he's been able to get away with that. But when you run into something like a pandemic, that basically called him out and it basically showed that he, you know, fundamentally it, it, it laid him bare for even people who were, I think, supporters of his to see. Now, they may have still voted for him and for, for, for a variety of other reasons, but, you know, you had to either believe that he was incompetent or that COVID was a giant farce. You can't you couldn't have believed anything else. If you if you I suppose there's some people who believe that every president would have handled this the same way. And, you know, I think those people should, should look at the book because I'm not suggesting that anybody would have handled it perfectly, but I'm suggesting that there were things over and above heat of the moment, kind of fog of war or mistakes, you know, that were basically done purposefully to the American public. It was almost perfectly wrong in every, at every step of the way. Almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let, let's let me ask you about Wuhan. You just mentioned it uh, briefly in the lab because I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Um, I I know, and I was very interested in this. I was on the Health Education Labor and Pension Committee. I was very interested in diseases that passed from animals to human beings. You know, that's the case in Ebola, right? That's the case in AIDS. That's been the case in a lot of things. And this idea that because the Wuhan laboratory is named a, a virology laboratory that they caused it. I mean, they're a virology laboratory because that's where uh, a lot of these coronaviruses come from. So it can uh, you shed just some light on this uh, for us? You know, first of all, I just say some context. The book, the way we've been talking about it, sounds like it's a book about Trump or or it's a policy book. It's actually mostly not. It's a book about a bunch of characters, people, real people, whose lives tell a great, uh, I think, a, a great way of telling the story of what happened. And one of those characters um, is the woman who actually explained to President Trump how viruses work and how how viruses evolve and they begin and 
This is a woman named Blythe Adamson. And the thing we learn about her is that she is um, trying to find a way to spend the pandemic like the rest of us. And so she's flying to, to her parents' place in Oregon with her two daughters. She's a, she's a woman, a single mom. She's a victim of domestic violence. She has been on, on, on medicated public assistance. She's, she's had to sleep in her car. But the other thing about her is she's one of the only people in the country that is both a PhD in epidemiology and a PhD in economics. And so she gets called to the White House. And two days later, she walks into the Roosevelt Room and is instantly the smartest person in the room. And she's the person who's in charge of putting together the models that help predict uh, what's going to happen. And, and the first time she meets President Trump, the president invites a bunch of volunteers into the Oval Office. And he, he has this little show place thing where, where, where it's all males except for her. And they're all young, wealthy people who've made a lot of money. And they're kind of talking about how much money they made. And they come to Blythe. And Blythe introduces herself as a PhD in economics and a PhD in epidemiology. And the president looks at her and says, the Chinese cooked this up in a lab, didn't they? And, or he said, you believe the Chinese cooked this up in a lab, right? And her response, which I think is one of the most genius responses I've ever heard, is, Mr. President, can I tell you a bedtime story? And she proceeds to then tell him a bedtime story that mesmerizes him. And, and it turns out that, that bedtime story, um, which is, takes place in a jungle in Africa and all these characters, turns out is the, is the story of the origin of the AIDS virus. And she explains to him how viruses have all their genealogy tied up in creatures and, and animals. And, and so anyway, there, and it, go, it, it sort of goes from there. But the, the, the reality of the of where the virus and and wasn't that eating meat? Yes, on bush meat. guys building a road or something. Yeah, or? bush meat. It was good guys who were working on plowing a road through the jungle started eating bush meat, uncooked bush meat, because they didn't have the time uh, and the ability to, to 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 do a fire. So that's okay, everybody. Don't do that. Yeah. And you said, don't do that to the audience. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, also slightly disrespectful to their intelligence. So here, here, here's the kind of thing. Here's what I think about the, the origin of this. thing. First of all, nobody knows. The intelligence report is written. I've, I've seen the intelligence report. The intelligence report basically is written where uh, two-thirds of people, uh, essentially, of the investigators believe it came from a bat and the third from a lab, none of them had high degrees of confidence. And the way these things are written is they express their level of confidence. So nobody knows the Chinese are uncooperative. They should be cooperative. There's circumstantial evidence you could create stories for both. Oh, it's a lab leak. Someone broke a test tube and aerosolized. Some of the scientists got it, brought it home. You can believe that story. But it would also be a very... What's this, honey? Oh damn! That was in my pocket at the lab. Right. It's something. Yeah, give Simpsons it back to episode. me. It's a Simpsons episode. Oh, Jimmy, don't. Oh, uh, don't play with the test. Oh, right. now it's all could be there. But here's a, here's kind of one of the points I want to make here on, on your show is that people are asking the question: Why did nobody believe Trump when he said, "Hey, this thing probably came from a lab." And tell me if you agree with my conclusion here. My conclusion is that if you lie all the time, people will think you're a liar. And if you're someone who lies, points fingers, avoids blame, makes stuff up, improvises, then when you say something, people aren't going to believe it. That's just a byproduct of being a liar. But... A stopped clock is right twice a day, but then again, a clock that's working that is eight and a half hours off is just wrong all the time. <laughs> all right. Yes. No. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So no, I mean, clearly the idea, but there are people who believe every word he says because yeah. 
Yeah. They've decided yeah. that's so what they're going to do. When he said that he didn't know, he had no idea. I mean, he said it as a deflection. Maybe he believed it, but he didn't see any intelligence reports which told him it was true. It is possible, but it is it was not said because he had some great insight. It was said because he wanted to basically make the point that this is a China virus. It's their fault. Everybody who dies in this country is not on me. And you know, yeah, now now he takes credit for stopping flights from China. Um, you have a statistic about how many people had flown from China to the United States uh, before that ban. Well, what had that been? And also, he wasn't banning Americans coming back, right? Yeah, and he wasn't banning travel from Europe. But it was it was his one go to action. It wasn't a very effective action. But the entire the entirety of the task force was not focused on PPE. It was not focused on testing. It was focused on one thing, how to bring Americans back from China. And they they did that. They brought a lot of Americans back home from China and then they and they banned travel. And um you know to be to be quite honest, Hong Kong, which is a little closer to China than we are, didn't ban travel. And they have they as as of nine months into the pandemic, only had 100 deaths. So there's not a logical conclusion to say that this was a a bold winning move on Trump's part or even an effective move on Trump's part. But, you know, when he came down to saying, well, what have you actually done? There's really only one thing he could point to. Yeah, but but he did do that. And uh, he did get some criticism at the time for it. But um, whatever the cause... Our president's first obligation is to protect the public and protect health of the public. Whether this was, you know, a Chernobyl or Three Mile Island or a Pearl Harbor bombing or a 9-11 or cooked in a lab or came from a bat, doesn't matter. His obligation is exactly the same. And I believe what he was telling the country was, folks, this is not on me. This is on China. It's the China virus. And you can't blame me for it. Well, you know, I really, really enjoyed the, reading this book because it was um, it, it gave me a lot of insight uh, and stuff we haven't talked about that really jumped out at me. Uh, that I, I just encourage people to to give this a uh, close read, actually, in terms of just what happened to know what happened, and and Andy was not just close to it in the four months that he was in the Biden administration, but preceding that did a tremendous amount working on the inside to get things done, including working with the people in the Trump administration. I admire what you've done and what you uh, did and what we, I, I assume you'll continue to do in this space and others, including trying to get to universal health care, which is the United States of care is their, um, their goal, the organization you created. Uh, thanks for doing this, Andy, again. Thank you for having me. Always great to connect. It is always fun. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.